Our Father, I do thank you for Trinity Reformed Church. Uh, you, You are accomplishing your purposes through this congregation, and we don't know where you'll guide us in the coming years, but we look forward to the wisdom that you will display through this church. And to you be all the praise and the glory for what you're doing here at TRC. God, now as we turn to your word, we want to know you as you really are. We thank you for your word that you've given to us as a lamp which shines in a dark place. By your spirit, Father, we pray that we would have eyes to see the light and that we may uh, stand yet just a little closer to, to the glow of that light this morning. So God, as we look forward to the day when Jesus returns, we'll finally stand in the full light of day. Uh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's stand and read God's word together. Second Peter 1, 16 through 21. The Apostle Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Praise God. You may be seated. Let's start with a question. It may seem basic, but how can we have confidence that what we believe is true? Stated another way, perhaps more relevantly, should we even say that what we believe is true? Isn't that a matter of opinion? I think sometimes we're accused of being self-serving when we try to enter into a dialogue of truth. Like, you know, we're accused, you're just trying to get me to believe what you believe. Isn't that an interesting statement? Should we be trying to get people to believe what we believe? After all, we're just doing our best to figure it out, right? Your opinion and my opinion stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side as equals. I'm not smarter than you. I'm not better than you. So why should I try to convince you that my conception of truth is better or more accurate than yours? As we go to this text, I want us to recall from last time, Peter was urgent, and he was urgent in reminding them He says, as long as I'm in this tent, I'm going to remind you about these things. As long as I'm alive in this body, I'm going to keep telling you about these things. It's quite clear that Peter does not think that there is time to hum and haw over what God says. And in fact, it seems to me here that Peter is throwing himself with his full weight into the task of inspiring confidence in what we believe and in the Word of God. I think what we see this morning in Peter is a conviction that both the Old and New Testament revelation are definitively and universally 
true. I believe he wants us to be confident that the scriptures are indeed a word from God and that we might know him as he is and be able to walk in obedience to him. So, he begins in verse uh, 16 here. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we be made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Did you ever have those flashes of doubt? You know, maybe, maybe the Bible's a hoax. Maybe it's all com- conspiracy, an elaborate conspiracy. Maybe it's just a clever ruse. I have those moments just for a flash of, of doubt. And there are such religious systems out there that are truly little more than a hoax. The cults are good examples of this. Consider Mormonism, this complex stories and visions and angelic visitations, the Book of Mormon translated from these golden tablets, which were some sort of Egyptian writing. You know, it's its own history, its own theology, this complicated family life that people are caught up in. All of it really is quite remarkable. It's an amazing system. And at first glance, we as Christians cast it off as, as lunacy, but Mormonism and the other cults are really clever myths, clever enough to captivate millions of people. I looked it up, I can't remember, it's something like 14 million right now worldwide, Mormons. Is Christianity one such clever myth? I stole this my title today from John Stott, well the idea for it, his title was better, Victims of an Urban Legend? Question mark. Is our faith simply one story amongst the smorgasbord of religious myths? Have we merely hand-selected what suits us best, what makes us most happy and most comfortable? Or maybe we have really done the research and picked the one that we think and we perceive aligns the best according to empirical evidence. Maybe we've got it all figured out. But in the end, we're just doing the best we can, right? We're getting as far as we can with the finite minds and finite resources that we have. And in the end, our claims to truth have to be just that, right? Our claims, our opinion of truth. That's the kind of thing we hear a lot today. And it was no different in Peter's day. Peter has apparently here been accused of adherence to clever mythology. And so he defends himself against those claims. Just like in our day, such claims served to, um, they kind of serve the baser desires of the people and opponents and the accusers that are making these claims. If you can remember from the introduction to this book, P- Peter's opponents, who we read about primarily in chapter 2, were quite possibly Epicureans or something like that, people who believe that pleasure is of the highest good. So it's not hard to see how it benefits these people to undermine Peter's teachings, his teachings which promote the abandonment of deep-rooted human desires and submission of oneself to a higher authority. A quick read through 2 Peter, especially chapter 3, reveals that Peter's opponents were keen to reject the second coming of Christ and the judgment which comes with it. They're not unlike the false prophets of the Old Testament or the false prophets of today who cry out, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And in order to propagate their philosophies, they begin to undercut Peter 
by saying his teaching is just clever myth. And Peter responds, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter here defends himself, and he's also at the same time shoring up the true teaching about Jesus Christ's second coming. This word translated coming, here is the Greek word parousia. And every time it's used in the New Testament of Jesus, parousia is not about his incarnation, but about his second coming, his arrival. And so Peter is saying here, whatever my opponents have to say, when we told you that Jesus would return in power and might as king and judge of the world, we were not propagating myths. This is true. How does he know it's true? Peter knows it's true because Peter saw the truth. This is not some ancient complex myth. This is something he saw with his own two eyes only decades before. He says at the end of verse 16, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter beheld with the veil lifted the kingly, divine, glorified state of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. I think it would be good to read one of the accounts of the Transfiguration. Uh, Turn over to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, 2 through 10. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Poor Peter, he's always getting caught up in his his emotions. He doesn't know what to say. (laughs) For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So Peter tells the story this way from his own memory in verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. There's so much to be gleaned, really, from the uh, story of the transfiguration. Uh, Jesus, as the approved Son of God, the approved messenger of God, uh, that he's greater than the law and the prophets, yet he is revealed not in their absence, but in their presence. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, his divinity shines forth. And we could go on and on about the transfiguration, but this isn't about the transfiguration this morning. I do recommend R.C. Sproul's sermon on that from the account in Luke. It's one of the greatest sermons I listened to this week. So I recommend that if you want to know more about the transfiguration. But Peter's particular purpose here in this text, in Second Peter, is to defend the veracity of his testimony in the face of accusers. He, he says, look, you think I'm espousing crafty myths here. I saw his glory. 
I heard the Heavenly Father testify to His Sonship. And I heard Him testify to His good pleasure in His Son. I was there. Did you notice here in Mark's account, Jesus? it says, Jesus took Peter and James and John and led them up on the mountain by themselves. He led them up. He wanted them to see this. This was intentional revelation. At the very least, what we have to say at this point is, Peter believes he saw glory of the Son revealed. We, we could say he's making it up, or that he's a little bit insane, but if we say that about these this, like if we were to accuse Peter as we accuse Brigham Young, then we would have to reject all of Scripture as well, because either it stands or it falls together. Either God's revelation is God's revelation of himself to man, and he is a good communicator, or it's the fabrication of human minds. There's no middle ground. So the point of all this is Peter's communication about Jesus is not ultimately his opinion about Jesus. It is God's truth. It's God's testimony. It's God's revelation. By God's grace, we can share in Peter's confidence. Jesus brought them to the mountain for a reason. It wasn't just show and tell. Well, actually, it was show and tell. He showed and they tell. They received that revelation, not just for them, but for our benefit. The apostles have recorded their testimony for us in the New Testament. As we read our Bibles, we can stand supremely confident and unwavering. So do not let those who say, that is your opinion, do not let those people shake you. It is not my opinion, it is God's opinion. And this is important. I am just laboring more and more every day to conform my opinion to God's opinion. It's not my opinion, it's God's opinion, and I am laboring every day to conform my opinion to God's opinion. Next, Peter turns our attention to Old Testament revelation. Verse 19, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. It's not coincidental that Moses and Elijah were at the transfiguration before the the apostles. Uh, Moses is representative of the law and Elijah of the prophets. So New Testament revelation and Old Testament revelation are unified in their message because they have the same author and their movements in the same story. Jesus stands apart from the law and the prophets because... He is the revelation of God, where the law and the prophets were the reflection of Jesus. Moses reflected the glory of God. When he saw God's backside, he was reflected that glory. Jesus, on the other hand, radiates from himself divine glory and from his very person. Matthew Henry says, The shining face of Moses was so weak that it could easily be concealed by a thin veil. But such was the glory of Christ's body that his clothes were enlightened by it. So I want to consider a couple of texts here. Uh, These texts foreshadow the themes that God spoke of at the Transfiguration. And just see if these texts don't inspire confidence in Scripture and in the second coming and judgment 
of Christ. Uh, Psalm 2 to start. If you want to turn over there. Psalm 2, 6 through 9. Uh, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Note here, it's no coincidence that Jesus was on a hill, or that Peter says we were with him on the holy mountain. He goes on, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So is this the prophetic word confirmed? Yes, yes it is. God himself testifies to it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is the Son from Psalm 2. And also people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language right now are the personal possession of Jesus, just like he says in Psalm 2 verse 8. The nations are even now bending the knee to Jesus. This confirmation of the prophetic word, the apostles witnessed it with their own eyes and their own ears. And hearing what they heard and seeing what they saw, there is no doubt in their minds that Jesus is the messianic king here from Psalm 2, set up on the holy hill, the Son of God. We can have confidence then that he will also come again in power to judge the nations, just as Psalm 2 proclaims. We can bet our lives on it. And I would encourage you to put all your eggs in that basket. One more text here, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 1. God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth judgment to the nations. So both at the baptism and the transfiguration, there was this voice born from heaven, attesting to the pleasure of the Father and the Son, just as here in Isaiah 42, in whom my soul delights. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. God has testified at the transfiguration in the presence of the apostles, this man, Jesus, he is the one prophesied. He is the one in whom my soul delights. He is my servant who will suffer and save and bring justice upon the nations. So, do we at times doubt the veracity of the apostolic testimony? Do we question the validity sometimes of our hope in Christ's return? Or are we times tempted to indulge the flesh because really the judgment seems far off and maybe a little bit like a fable? We need to recall in those moments that the prophetic word spoken and confirmed to us. Christ's reign is right now. As sure as Peter heard the voice of God speaking from heaven, Christ reigns in heaven. And as sure as God announced pleasure in his son, Jesus will come to judge in righteousness. So those two texts are a couple of literally thousands of examples of the confirmed prophetic word. And they give us an unwavering confidence. Even in the face of those who would call them mere fables, we rest secure in the testimony of men who saw the majestic glory and heard the very voice of God. We have the prophetic word confirmed 
And we do have it confirmed. Don't let anyone take that away from you. Peter says, you will do well to pay attention to this word confirmed as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. A few weeks ago, I did a lesson for Jumpstart, the the thing we do with YFC at the middle school. And uh, we're going through John. We were at the the story of, of John the Baptist, and it says that he came, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. And uh, so I started with this illustration. I mean, if ask the kids if they've been to Rifle Falls. There's, there's caves at Rifle Falls, deep, pretty deep caves, and Cohen loves to go in them, and we like to walk in deep, turn off our flashlights, and that is dark. That is dark, dark. And sometimes life feels like that, dark. And so John the Baptist says, you know, he testifies to the light. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sin. Jesus is the light. Well, kids are not the only ones who need a nightlight. The world is a dark place. We all wrestle with hopelessness. We all wrestle with the darkness of sin both in and around us. Peter says that the confirmed Prophetic word shines as a light in the season of darkness. A candle in a dark cave for us. Now it might strike us as strange, especially as we hold the Bible in such high esteem, that there will come a day when the written word will no longer be needed. You know, perhaps we'll look back on it to revel in what God has done, like Israel did with Exodus, I don't know. But one day, the day will dawn, and the night watchman when the day dawns, no longer needs the candle. He has the light of the sun. So as much as we glory in the light which God has been so gracious to give us, it is but a dim dim oil lamp in comparison to the full glory which will be revealed. <clears throat> I want to pause at this point and kind of answer the what is, to me, kind of the burning interpretive question, what is the morning star which rises in our hearts? What does that mean? And I'll answer it, with the simple answer, I don't know. <laughs> and not conclusively, anyway. Um, you are welcome to write a report and return it to me next week. But here's my best shot at it. Is that Peter says we have the, the lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. So I believe the dawning of the day is the return of Christ. That day when we no longer see dimly, but we will see the full light of his glory. And I think the rising morning star is a metaphor which also means the dawning of the day. You know, Venus is called the morning star because it rises just before the sun. It kind of pulls up the sun for the day. So the morning star is, in my opinion, the subjective experience brought on by the objective reality of the return of Christ. In other words, when Jesus returns, he says... It's the morning star rising in our hearts. When Jesus returns, our own hearts will be illumined. Sin and darkness will finally be pushed out by the morning star. So that that gives me a sure hope for the future. Jesus, the messianic king, reigns in heaven and will one day restore all things to their proper place. One day we will be free of sin, free of darkness. We will be in the very presence of he who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. 
We do not yet have that full revelation, but we can cling to the illuminating light of the confirmed prophetic word. As we wait, we have that as a guarantee that the day will indeed dawn. Finally here, Peter concludes these verses with an, by answering a question, which is, what is the source of our confidence in Scripture? Verse 20, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So why does the Old Testament revelation give us confidence? The same reason the New Testament revelation gives us confidence is that they are from God. They are from God. If you've watched those conspiracy theory shows, it's usually like daytime television with with dramatic music and specious evidence. And, you know, it's usually the shows that are like the aliens built the pyramids or the Freemasons rule the world. Um, (laughs) Biblical prophecy is often treated in that way. It's like, look at this, look how this lines up with this, and, and see how this bit of text relates to this modern event, and compare these numbers with those numbers. That use of biblical prophecy does not inspire confidence. Rather, it lends credence to those who would say, we follow cleverly, or perhaps not so cleverly, devised myths. The Bible is not ultimately reliable because all the facts check out. Though our sin and spiritual blindness aside, they do check out. But the Bible is not ultimately reliable because all the facts check out. The Bible is ultimately reliable because it is God's word. Turn real quick over to uh, 848 in your hymnal. We're going to look at the, the Westminster Confession. Then I'll wrap up shortly. Eight forty eight. Is that chapter one? I have the right page. Chapter one, section four. Okay, section four of chapter one. It says the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Also, section 5. This is really beautiful and amazing. I love this section. But we may be moved by and induced by the testimony of the church to a high high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all authority to God, the full discovery it makes of the whole way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. This is the great part. Yet, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. So the Word of God, the Bible, is God's Word 
for no other reason than that it is God's word. Our confidence in scripture is that its source is God. Though he used human authors, human minds, human situations to communicate his truth, scripture is not the contrivance of fallible human will or explanation. It's an extraordinary thing and a difficult thing to wrap our heads around, but the Bible is God's writing through men. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these men who wrote scripture were not robotic arms. They were not just receiving dictation from God. Men communicated truth to other men, and yet God breathed it out through them, spirit-inspired. John Stott says, On the one hand, God spoke, deciding what he wanted to say, yet not in such a way as to violate the personality of the human author. (coughs) On the other hand, men spoke, using their faculties freely, yet not in such a way as to distort the message of the divine author. We must never affirm either in such a way as to deny the other. Men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, the apostles saw Jesus transfigured before them, and and they saw and walked with him, and they wanted to testify to it. The prophets saw and heard what God had for them to see and hear, and they proclaimed it. And brothers and sisters, it sounds basic, but the Bible is God's word. We can get that. That is a life-altering reality. God's word. God's truth. So, um, to sum up here, commentator Gene Green sums up this text perfectly. So I want to quote his sentence and then close by giving just a few points of application. Uh, Green's quote is, is great, a great summary of this passage. This is not Peter versus the heretics, but the prophets and apostles versus the errorists. And so ultimately a contention between the deceivers and the Lord himself. And that's the issue, isn't it? And when it comes down to, down to defending the gospel or, or defending biblical doctrine, it's not ultimately a defense of our own opinions. Remember that claim from the beginning that I talked about. You're, you're just trying to get me to believe what you believe. Yes. <laughs> yes, I am. We're trying to win you to your side, not because it's our side, but because it's God's side. I didn't make this stuff up. Peter didn't make this stuff up. God has spoken. Praise God, we we need not flounder in the dark any longer. He's given us light in a dark place. He's revealed to us what we need to know to believe in His Son and be saved. He's shown us the truth about our Messiah, King Jesus, who rules and reigns on high, and without any shadow of doubt will come again to judge the world in righteousness. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Please repent, believe upon the name of Christ, and submit to Him in faith and obedience. So be confident, brothers and sisters. Be confident. Put every last one of your eggs in the basket of God's truth. Know by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible is God's breathed out truth. We can know We can believe. We can walk in the light. Amen.